This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is a very different episode of Violent Ends. One I never thought that I would have to make, and one I can't believe I'm actually doing. As you all know, I'm a Michigan girl. More specifically, I was born, raised, and have lived my entire life in the Lansing area. And part of the Lansing area is East Lansing, home to Michigan State University. At the time of this recording, it's been six days since a mass shooting on MSU's campus killed three students, critically wounded five others, and left our entire community just just devastated. My original plan was to scrap this week's episode altogether. It's been researched and written out, and it isn't even about murder, but I just I don't have it in me to do what I normally do um, this week. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I need to do this now while it's fresh and from a perspective that Google searches and traditional research just can't provide. No matter how hard it is, and it's hard, but I'm going to do my best to keep it together. Today, we're going to talk about what happened, but not in the way that you're probably thinking. So if you can, please stick with me. If you can't, I absolutely understand, and I will see you next episode. I will never forget where I was at 8.18 p.m. on February 13th, 2023, when the first shots fired call was made to 911. I was at my shop with my husband and my youngest son. My oldest was at home recovering from a recent surgery, and we were getting the shop ready to paint the next day moving furniture out of the way, taping off walls, that kind of stuff. My shop is less than five miles from Berkey Hall, so shortly after the shooting began, we heard the sirens flying by, and there were a lot of sirens. We're close to the highway, so I just assumed it was a bad accident. We were getting the car loaded up, ready to go, when I opened my Facebook on my phone and saw a post from a friend in all caps active shooter on MSU campus. And at first I didn't panic. In no small part because of a dumpster fire of a local crime watch Facebook group, there are a lot of false alarms and there's always misinformation floating around about things going on in town. In fact, there was a pretty big scare less than a week earlier all over the state of Michigan as well as here locally. On February 7th, schools across the state were placed on lockdown after false active shooter calls were made to 911. So this wasn't what we typically see, which we should never see, but we do. Um, You know, a threat written on a bathroom wall or someone posted on Snapchat some cryptic message about something that's going to happen. This was calls being made to 911 stating there is someone shooting inside the school. Um, And it wasn't just one school. It was multiple schools kind of all at the same time, which was really weird. One of those schools was Okemos High School. Okemos is a small town that borders East Lansing to the east. So if East Lansing and the MSU campus are in the middle, Lansing is immediately to the west and Okemos is immediately to the east. This appeared to be a coordinated swatting effort as someone with a heavy accent, 
Not sure what kind of accent that wasn't specified, but someone with a heavy accent called 911 uh, over and over and over reporting that they were a teacher at such and such a school and there was an active shooter in the building. These false reports were called in at schools in Okemos, Jackson, Detroit, Ann Arbor, and Saginaw, all seemingly from the same person or group of people. When the 911 call about Okemos High School was made that Tuesday morning, Ingham County Sheriff Scott Rigglesworth and his deputies were on scene within three minutes. Sheriff Rigglesworth stated, In my head, this was the real deal. It's here, and I'm going to get in that building however I can. It's here. Because mass shootings, school shootings have become an epidemic in the U.S., a distinctly American problem, and it's only a matter of time before it happens here, no matter where here is. It wasn't here, though. Not that day. But it was coming. Just six days later, the Ingham County Sheriff's Department responded to reports of an active shooter on MSU's campus. MSU is in Ingham County. And this time, it was real. But at Okemos, on February 7th, the building was swept, the call was determined to be a hoax, and the shelter-in-place was lifted. Students were released for the day, even though it wasn't yet lunchtime and school was canceled the next day as well to allow students and families to process and recover and to provide a supportive transition for the learning community. The Ingham County Prosecutor John Duane released the following statement. The false report of a school shooting at Okemos High School today affected our entire community. These reports are terrifying to teachers, parents, students, community members, law enforcement, and anyone who has a loved one inside an education building. Any threat of violence against our schools, even when deemed to be false, should be addressed to the fullest extent of the law. This was no mere hoax or victimless prank. For many students and their families, the terror was all too real. The terror was real, but the threat was not. Students got to spend a couple days at home, which that actually made me really happy because that's not how these things usually go. Um, my kids' schools went on lockdown tons of times over the years, and I would always, you know, rush to the school and be waiting a safe distance away, whatever the police deemed that to be, until the lockdown was over. But then the kids were expected to go back to business as usual. Uh, I always let my kids come home if they wanted to. Usually they wanted to. Sometimes they stayed, but it, it made me happy to see that these kids were sent home and allowed to stay home the next day. I think that's a change that absolutely needs to happen since clearly school shootings aren't going to be stopping anytime soon. So yeah, the kids got to spend a couple days at home being reassured that they were safe because things like that don't happen here. And then six days later, it did happen here. So because of this false alarm six days earlier and because of all of the false alarms we've experienced in our community over the years, I swear my kids' schools went into shelter-in-place mode like at least a couple times a year. My immediate reaction was, no. <laughs> no. This isn't happening. This isn't real. This is another false alarm. To reassure myself, I, like many of you, tuned into the local police scanner, and it only took maybe five seconds to realize that this time it was very, very real. 
as was the official alert sent to students by MSU telling them to run, hide, fight. Before we get too far into this episode, I want to take a moment to kind of describe the MSU campus because I know a lot of my listeners aren't local and I want you to be able to picture everything. Uh, But before I do that, I do need to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Now, just like I considered canceling this week's episode altogether, I considered contacting my network to see if we could pull the ads this week, and I'm sure they would have accommodated that request. My network is wonderful and my sponsors are wonderful, but I decided a better choice would be to keep the ads and donate the revenue to the Spartan Strong Fund, which is what I'm going to do. And we'll talk about the fund a little bit later on, what it's for, how you can donate, all of that. Uh, Please know also the ads for today were recorded prior to all of this happening. So that's the reason for kind of the abrupt change in tone that you'll notice. Um, So I'll be right back. As you all know, I live in a house full of boys, which means a lot of food and a lot of food waste. Two dumpsters worth. Every week, (laughs) our trash bill is not cheap. Then I got a Lomi. Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet. Thanks to Lomi, I have way less garbage each week and might even be able to get rid of that second dumpster soon. Less garbage leaving my house means less garbage going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can use to feed my plants. I still can't get over the magic of it all. I'm always going to check and see if it's done yet. I know exactly what I'm going to find when I remove my Lomi lid at the end of the process, but I still find it so exciting. And it feels good to know that I'm composting and creating soil instead of waste. With this limitless supply of nutrient-rich dirt, I might even take up gardening. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash violent and use promo code violent to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash violent and use promo code violent at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can. And be sure to tell them I sent you. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Spartan Country, which we've done this many times before the school was even featured heavily in the very first episode of this podcast. MSU was founded in 1855 as the Agricultural College of the State of Michigan. It went through several name changes before settling on Michigan State University in 1964. The MSU campus is one of the largest in the United States at over 5,200 acres and has a student body of over 50,000. While much of the student body is made up of Michiganders, students come from all over the world to study at Michigan State. But it's important to understand, especially if you're not familiar with really big college towns like this one, The MSU is not a self-contained campus where there's like one or two big entrances and it's just the students and faculty walking around. 
The campus of Michigan State weaves throughout the city of East Lansing with fraternity and sorority houses next door to residential homes and academic halls across the street from public restaurants and shopping centers, even a Target. As such, there are really kind of two sides to Spartan country. There's the students and the faculty and the staff and the alumni, of course, but then there's also the surrounding community that's always there supporting the ever-revolving student body and the sports teams and the school in general. MSU is not adjacent to the residential community. It is a part of that community, a huge part of the greater Lansing area. So even those of us who don't go to school at Michigan State or send our kids there, we consider it home. So I mean it when I tell you that this tragedy didn't happen close to home. This is home for me, and I know for so many of you as well. The oldest part of campus is the North Campus, where the original three buildings once stood. They've all long since been torn down, but the buildings that stand in their place are these super cool-looking gothic behemoths built in the 20s and 30s and 40s. If you're traveling from Lansing into East Lansing down Grand River Avenue, which is the route that I typically take and kind of the main route there. North Campus is the first part of campus you'll see. It'll be on the right-hand side of the road while businesses and restaurants, including my favorite burger joint, Five Guys Burgers and Fries, will be on the left. One of those big, beautiful buildings across the street from Five Guys and Target and this whole like main drag of restaurants and shops is Berkey Hall which was built in 1945 and is home to the College of Social Science, the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research, and the Department of Sociology. It is located between Olin Health Center, where my ex-mother-in-law worked for years and years and years, and the Eli and Edith Broadart Museum, which looks wholly out of place amongst these old university buildings. Students call it the spaceship because it's this big, new age, shiny metal monstrosity. If you're one of the 10 or so people who's seen the movie Batman versus Superman, then you've seen this museum before because they used it as Lex Luthor's house in the film. Berkey Hall, for whatever reason, is where a very sick evil man chose to begin his reign of terror on Monday, February 13th, 2023. There are two stories here, really, and I'm going to tell them both. Um, What was going on as this nightmare unfolded in the moment, in real time, and what we know now to be the true timeline of events. The shooting started just about 8.15 p.m. as the first 911 call was made at 8.18 p.m. The news started spreading like wildfire in the community probably around 8.30, and by 9 p.m., over 200,000 of us were tuned into the scanner as the calm, professional, composed voice of 911 operator Amy Barajas, a local resident and mother, relayed reports to the dozens of law enforcement agencies on the scene. MSU Campus Police, East Lansing Police, Lansing Police, Lansing Township Police, Ingham County, Eaton County, Clinton County, Michigan State Police, and those were just some of the local departments. Departments from all over the state responded. But in those first horrible moments, it was all local women and men, 
many of whom are MSU alumni themselves, and all of whom consider MSU home. So we left the shop that night at about 9. We have to pass over this bridge to get to the highway, and the bridge kind of goes over 496, which is the main highway here in Lansing. And as we were passing the bridge, eastbound traffic was just a complete standstill because the exits were shut down and emergency vehicles were just kind of flying up the shoulders on both sides of the road. And then our entire way home, our entire way home, we're headed west away from all of this and emergency vehicles from all over are just flying towards East Lansing. I will never, ever, ever forget what that what that felt like to watch that happening. And the calls coming in to 911 were terrifying. To listen to the scanner, it was being reported that there were multiple shooters, they were all over campus, and there were shootings happening in multiple buildings at once. Now, there are over 500 buildings on MSU's campus, big buildings, and they all had to be cleared. And again, over 50,000 students to account for. And that's just the students. That doesn't include faculty, staff, and just people who happened to be on campus at the time. I was on campus. Earlier that day, I was out there running errands. My youngest son was supposed to be on campus that night visiting a friend but I needed his help at the store. So thank God, thank God he was with me. One of his friend's roommates was in the classroom at Berkey Hall where the shooting began. And we would find out later, the shooter walked right past the house that my son was supposed to be visiting on his way back toward where he came from. So again, listening to the scanner in real time, it was complete fucking chaos. And a lot of that was caused by genuine fear At this point, there were police officers with guns everywhere, and because there were so many different agencies, they all had different uniforms on, so they weren't all dressed the same. They didn't all look the same. It was dark out, so reports of, you know, a man with a gun, boots under doorways, men knocking on doors filled with hiding students saying they were the police, but were they really? Every loud bang, every suspicious person Frightened students screaming sent officers just scrambling toward a new possible scene over and over and over. There were so many, so many, and this 911 operator, Amy, bless her, she was reporting them so quickly and concisely. But the two that I still so vividly remember, a group of students hiding in a dorm room, called 911 to report that a man wearing heavy boots was standing outside the door saying, open up. And then a student in another dorm room called 911 to report that she'd heard a man yelling out in the hall and then just screaming, screaming, screaming. My son and I were listening to all of this as we drove toward home, away from the danger, watching these emergency vehicles fly past us, driving toward the scene. and. I just, I I couldn't believe this was really happening. It was so surreal. I couldn't stop crying. I still don't think I've really stopped crying on a consistent basis. So photos started circulating on social media of three men walking around campus with rifles. These were genuine photos taken by frightened students from the windows of the rooms they were hiding in. But the men turned out to be police officers patrolling the area, which from the angle of the photo, you couldn't really tell that. 
In the moment, though, this added to all of the chaos and confusion. There were reports that explosives had been left around campus, which of course added a whole new dangerous element. And again, all of these false reports could be chalked up, well, most of them, to you know, the chaos, the confusion, genuine fear that people were having. But there was misinformation being spread maliciously as well because humans are the fucking worst. There was a screenshot being shared of a Facebook post made by a man named Lynn D. Walker at 6.22 p.m. on the 13th, so about two hours before the shooting started, that said, hope you're ready, MSU. All of you chuds are going to pay. Millions must fucking die. And along with the post was a photo of a young white man with glasses and a goatee smiling and giving the middle finger to the camera. And this whole thing was completely fucking fake. The Facebook account did not exist. Lindy Walker did not exist. But this man in this picture did exist. He's a real person who had nothing to do with what was happening, but he was thrown into the middle of the chaos all the same. Who? Who would take some... As all of this is actively happening, no less, who would take some random person's picture and create a false identity and screenshot to purposely spread misinformation and put this very real human in danger like that? Somebody did. Multiple somebodies. Because there was another post with photos of two additional young men identified as 19-year-old Alex Jurek and 20-year-old Bruce Purviewt. Not e- those don't even sound like real names. And even in the moment, I could tell that that post specifically was fake news because the pictures did not look like real people. They looked like AI-generated almost. Definitely heavily filtered, if, if not AI-generated. And indeed, those were not real either. A third completely false report that circulated was a photo of a young black man with glasses identified as 22-year-old Ramon Jordan, who was named as the suspect and believed to be armed and dangerous. Now, the only reason that I'm sharing these names with you is because they weren't real. They were completely fake. Um, I think that those two photos in the middle there were also fake, like AI-generated weirdness. But the other two photos, the Raymon and the Lee Dylan, Lee D. Walker, those were real pictures of real people who were put into very real danger by every single person that pass these photos around. Which brings me to my next rant. The scanner app we were all listening to was a huge catalyst to the misinformation being spread because in the moment, it was horrifying. But we have to remember that the dispatcher is just reporting what's being called in. That doesn't mean it's what's actually happening. But another huge contributor to the fake news was a Lansing-centric Crime Watch Facebook page led by a person with zero morals who would rather create chaos for clicks than share useful, accurate, helpful information. It's basically the Jerry Springer of Facebook pages, and if you're local to me, I'm sure you know exactly what page I'm talking about. So if you follow this page, please, for the love of God, unfollow it. It is nothing but absolute garbage that does more harm than good, and that's never been more clear than it is in the wake of what just happened. 
And I hope just in general that we all give more thought to where we're getting the information that we share because those men whose faces were used to create fake screenshots identifying fake suspects, they're probably already lawyered up and I hope they sue the shit out of every big platform that shared the misinformation without fact-checking it first. I did hear that one of those fake screenshots even made its way to CNN, but I don't know if that's true. Could just be more fake news. I know that we want to know everything right now, right now, right now, but there's a reason that it takes time to put out information because real, reliable sources have to fact check first and make sure that what they're sharing is valid. I know it's easy to get caught up. I know it is, but we all need to do better and stop relying on trash ass fake content creators for our news. So, as we were all shocked and terrified and trying to check on our people, which, how do you even? I knew where my kids and my husband and my parents were, but how do you decide who to check in with when 98% of the people you know might have been on campus? I was just there that day. My son was supposed to be there that night. Where do you even begin when the danger is happening at home? In those awful, awful early moments, the story was that there were multiple shooters, shootings in buildings all over campus, explosives hidden all over campus, and reports from this one psychotic Facebook account that I was seeing posting on like every news outlet and community Facebook page saying, police told families that there are at least 14 dead, just over and over and over the same person. And I wish that I could find some of those posts now in those comments because I would light that person's ass up. Just... unfathomable, but I wasn't able to find it again. What really happened that night, we know now, was very, very different from what it felt like was happening in the moment. On the evening of February 13th, 2023, 64-year-old professor Marcos Diaz Munoz was teaching a class on Cuban cultural identity in room 114 at Berkey Hall. The classroom is theater style, as many university classrooms are. So when you enter from the back, you're like, when you enter through the door, you're like at the back top of the classroom. And then the seating is tiered in several step-down levels all the way down to where the professor is teaching. So as he flipped through these PowerPoint slides on that night's lessons, Professor Diaz Munoz and his students heard three loud booms from outside the classroom. The professor assumed that it was a transformer or some sort of electrical malfunction. This was an old building, after all. But seconds later, an armed gunman appeared in the classroom door, which again, due to the style of the classroom, he was up at the top and back of the room. His identity was concealed by a face mask and ball cap, but he looked to be a short black male. What stood out about him to witnesses was his bright red tennis shoes and the 9 millimeter revolver he was holding. He raised his hand, and he started firing. Uh, by Professor Diaz Munoz's count, at least 15 shots. Emotionless, silent, like a robot. He didn't say a word. And then he just left. I want to read you an excerpt from the New York Times, and then I want you to just really, really think about it for a second. It said, 
After the shooting began, Mr. Diaz Munoz said he was too shocked to dive for cover. But his students, well-trained in classroom shooting drills, reacted instantly. They began to scramble to escape, trying to hide under desks or run toward another door in the classroom away from the gunman. We have raised an entire generation, now college-aged, that instinctually knows what to do during a school shooting. Just, just think about that for a second. Diaz Munoz ran to the door and he blocked it with his body so that the gunman could not get back in, knowing that this man could return at any moment and he would be directly in the line of fire if that happened. He told his kids to start breaking windows, do whatever you've got to do to get out, which most of them did, but some of them stayed behind to tend to the wounded. All five of the students who were critically wounded and two of the three killed were in room 114 at Berkey Hall. So those who managed to escape, most of them without their phones and their personal belongings, um, so they're unable to respond to the messages that they were getting or they were unable to contact their friends and families right away. They were all taken to the Broad Art Museum next door, the home of Lex Luthor, where they spent the next several hours. Even though there were other classes being held at Bricky Hall, other students hiding under their desks in fear, doing what's been ingrained in them since kindergarten, the shooter left Bricky Hall and headed west, past Olin Health Center and a parking ramp and the Human Ecology Building, and then entered the MSU Union Hall. The Union Hall is one of the oldest buildings on campus, built in 1925. It's a community hub home to studying spaces, game rooms, rooms that can be booked for meetings and events. People have weddings there. There's a popular food court, there's shops, there's an art gallery, just a ton of stuff going on at the Union Hall at all times. Student Jack Gibson was working at the food court when shots first rang out. At first, he thought a balloon had popped, but the pops just kept coming. So he looked toward where the sound was coming from, and he saw a gun pointed directly at him. He believes that the gunman fired at him and missed. So he, like the 100-plus other students in the building when the shooting began, started running. But then Jack thought about his coworker still trapped in the kitchen, and he tried to turn back, but another student grabbed his arm and stopped him. That student likely saved Jack's life because the third student killed that night was Jack's coworker. While students hid in classrooms and dorm rooms with the lights off, afraid to make any sound, and worried parents raced toward campus from other cities and states only to find themselves stuck in gridlocked traffic, unable to get anywhere near their children, and 911 operators fielded hundreds of calls trying to weed out the false reports from the valid tips and law enforcement agencies scoured the campus in the dark of night, clearing each building floor by floor, the shooter was long gone, on his way back toward his North Lansing home. At 11.18 p.m., authorities released a description of the shooter, along with two images captured by a surveillance camera. They were looking for a black male, about 5'7", wearing a jean jacket and bright red sneakers. Not 15 minutes later, a young couple living on the north side of Lansing called 911 to report that the suspect had just walked past their house with their one-year-old baby sleeping inside. The caller, Tabitha Watson, later told reporters that she heard the sirens and helicopters coming, 
Then she heard a single gunshot, then silence. It would be another hour before police announced that the suspect had shot himself in the head as police approached him near the intersection of Lake Lansing Road and Larch Street in North Lansing and was killed instantly. I think when we hear about a school shooting, we all kind of get the same picture in our head, right? A young, angry white man, an outcast who, if he survives, is going to claim bullying drove him to mass murder. But this was not that. The shooter, whose name I'm not going to say today but is easy enough to find online, was a 43-year-old man who, despite a history of mental illness and a criminal background, was able to legally purchase the two 9mm handguns and multiple magazines that were found on his body, along with a lengthy suicide note. One thing that's really weird is when they released the picture, um, my immediate thought was, and you couldn't see his face at all, at all, because he had the mask on, he had the hat on. But I just was like, I've, I've seen this man before. Those shoes, that jacket, those jeans even. I have seen this person before. But at the time, they hadn't released, you know, they didn't know anything about him. So I was just kind of thinking like, okay, I feel like I've seen this person, but the person that I'm almost picturing is older. He's not a kid. And of course, school shooting, you think it's going to be a kid. Uh, so then when they released that it was a 43-year-old man, I'm I'm pretty sure that I, I have seen this man before. And they released pictures of his face and he looked very familiar. I don't know if he maybe came into my shop or I ran into him at Meyer or just out in the world, but I definitely think that I had encountered that man at some point in time, which is just really scary to think about. Not many details have been released on what exactly happened when police approached the suspect. It, you know, it still hasn't even been a week at the time that I'm recording this. So, um, you know, this is still very much an active investigation, but authorities have shared that the man had no known connection to the university, although his manifesto did mention specifically shooting up MSU. His own father told reporters that his son, who lived with him but was basically a recluse, barely left his bedroom, was evil and had demons inside him. He even referred to him in one article as a wolf man. The man was less than a mile from home when police caught up with him. If he'd made it home and been able to take off those red shoes and that jean jacket, he might not have been spotted and caught so quickly, and he might have been able to carry out the rest of his plan, which, according to authorities, was to return to his home state of New Jersey and shoot up his old elementary and high school. And just like that, as quickly as it started, it was over. But it will never really be over, not for us here in Spartan country. Three young lives were lost in an act of violence that we will never be able to make sense of. Before we go on, I do need to thank today's other sponsor. Just a reminder, all ad revenue from this episode will be donated to the Spartan Strong Fund, which we'll talk about a bit later. And this advertisement was recorded prior to the tragedy in my community, which is the reason for the difference in tone that you'll hear. And I'll, I'll be back in just a minute. There's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care, and that's because your hair and your hair goals are completely unique. 
I have hard water, which is so rough on my hair. I've got a lot of damage, and even though it's thin and stick straight, my hair is also somehow super frizzy. But thanks to my personalized pros routine, I can honestly say that I've never been more in love with my hair. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. Using natural ingredients with proven results, Pros customizes every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Pros starts by asking about your hair goals like damage repair, more volume. Their in-depth consultation also asks about you as a person. Pros asked me really unexpected things that I would have never thought related to my hair, like my eating habits, my exercise routines, things like that. Next, Pros analyzed all my answers and handpicked clean ingredients to help me reach my hair goals. I even got to pick the scent. My new shower routine includes the Pros hair mask as well as the shampoo and conditioner. And even though my water is as hard as ever, my hair has never felt softer or healthier. As a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon-neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the key to achieving all your hair goals this year. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash violent. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash violent for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off your order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. Ariel. Diamond Anderson, Ari to family and friends, was just 19. She was a sophomore at MSU, a 2021 graduate of Gross Point North High School. She wanted to be a doctor, uh, a surgeon to be exact, which is kind of a strange dream for a five-year-old to have, but Ariel always knew what she wanted, and she wanted to help people. Those who knew her had no doubt that once she set her mind to something, she would achieve it. She was smart and sweet and mature for her age. She loved roller skating, and she had the biggest, brightest smile. She enrolled in the Detroit Police Department's junior cadet program at the age of 14, and she left a lasting impression on her supervisor. Corporal Marvin Reed told the Detroit News, I don't know if anybody's perfect, but Ariel was perfect, almost. She was on her way to being something great. You just already knew. Ariel's funeral is being held uh, today, the day that this recording will be released, Tuesday, at Zion Hope Baptist Church in Detroit. Her family has started a GoFundMe to cover funeral costs and other expenses. I will put the link for that on the Facebook page, as well as the page for this episode on the Violent Ends website. Alexandria Werner, who went by Alex, was a junior at MSU, just 20 years old. She was from Clawson, a small Detroit suburb. In high school, she was all-state in basketball, volleyball, and softball, as well as a member of the National Honor Society. Everyone who knew Alex loved her and respected her. She was responsible, kind, and determined. She could have played sports at the collegiate level, but chose to focus on academics instead. 
She was studying forensics at MSU's School of Criminal Justice and wanted to be a forensic scientist. She, along with Ariel, was killed in room 114 at Berkey Hall. Her funeral was held this past Saturday in her hometown. Alex's family does not have an active fundraiser, but they do have plans to start a scholarship in her name. 20-year-old Brian Frazier was a sophomore at Michigan State. A graduate of Gross Point South High School, Brian was the president of his fraternity, Phi Delta Theta, and was well-liked by everyone who knew him. He was a born leader with an infectious smile, a student athlete, lifeguard, and business major. Brian was well-rounded and responsible. He was on shift at the Union Hall food court when the shooting began and was the only student who didn't make it out of the Union Hall that night. His fraternity brothers have started both a GoFundMe for Brian's family and a scholarship in his name, the Brian Frazier Presidential Memorial Scholarship. I will post links for both on the Facebook page and the page for this episode on the website. Just like Alex, Brian was laid to rest this past Saturday. If you're local, I know that you've seen photos of all three of these beautiful, beautiful children. They were just kids. They were just kids. If you haven't, I do encourage you to to look them up. They they just look at their faces. I mean, it's such a loss. It's such a loss, and I'm so angry, so angry. In addition to the three young leaders whose lives were cut short, five students were critically injured. Michigan State Police have said that they will not release the identities of the survivors, that that is for the families to do or not do, but we do have some details. One of the survivors is a graduate of Okemos High School, a music education major who was shot in the chest during his Cuban cultural identity course at Berkey Hall. It hasn't been specified, um, but it's believed that he is likely the survivor whose condition has been upgraded from critical to serious and now fair condition, as it's been reported that he's sitting up, talking, texting with friends, and has even taken a few steps. In addition to one survivor, likely the young man from Okemos being upgraded to fair condition, another has been upgraded to serious but stable condition. We're just not sure which one that is. The other three victims remain in critical condition. One of them is a Michigan native, uh, lives about an hour from the Lansing area, and it's been confirmed that two of the victims are international students here from China. One of those victims has been identified as 20-year-old John Howe, who was shot in the back as he sat in room 114 in Berkey Hall and is now paralyzed from the chest down. John is a sports enthusiast who loves the Detroit Pistons, James Harden specifically, and was pursuing a degree in sports medicine. His parents, who do not speak English, have traveled here from China to be with their son, and they are facing just a mountain of debt and unexpected expenses. So a GoFundMe was started by John's roommate, but at the time of this recording, GoFundMe had not yet verified it, so they disabled the donations temporarily. Um, I'm not going to share that one at this time, but I will add it if they verify it and open it back up. At the time that they shut it down, it already had like over $300,000 in donations, which is incredible. The other survivor who's been identified is Guadalupe Wapia Perez from 
Amakali, Florida, who is a junior at Michigan State majoring in hospitality. According to her sister, Lupe is incredibly hardworking, focused, and ambitious, choosing a path that's never been explored in our family. It allows her to travel, learn, and challenge herself. She's always wanted to stand up for our community and speak out for those marginalized voices like our own. Not much is known about Lupe's condition, but her family has traveled from Florida to be by her side, which means they can't work to pay the bills at home, and now they also have to pay, you know, for expenses here in Michigan. There is a GoFundMe set up for Lupe, and I am going to post a link, but I'll say this. If you're only able to donate to one GoFundMe or scholarship fund, give them all a little perusal before donating, because some of them have yet to meet their goal or have just met their goal, while Lupe's is currently at just under half a million dollars at the time of this recording. It'll probably be over by the time you guys hear this. Uh, I saw someone say that a celebrity shared her story. I have no idea who. Um, So she's gotten a ton of donations from the fans of whoever the celebrity was that shared her GoFundMe. So if you can donate to all of them, certainly do that. But if you have to choose, maybe let's kind of even the balance a little bit. All five survivors are currently at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing. But those killed and wounded weren't the only victims. How, with a student body of 50,000 plus, do you even begin to start telling their stories? There's a reporter by the name of Isabella Martin. She's a journalism major at Michigan State, and she also works for Fox 47 News. She's a super nice young lady, very professional. I worked with her on a project for the bookstore last year. She has been talking with her fellow students and sharing their stories, uh, so I encourage you to go watch some of those. Her handle on like Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok is Isabella Reports, or you could just look up like Isabella Martin MSU or Isabella Martin Fox 47, and you'll find her that way. As far as what stories we'll talk about today, I want to tell you about Emma Riddle. Emma is a freshman at MSU who spent four hours barricaded in her dorm room, hiding under a desk with her roommate. Emma was a senior at Oxford High School in 2021 when a 15-year-old went on a shooting rampage that killed four students and injured six others, as well as one teacher. Emma, along with several other Oxford grads, has been through two deadly school shootings in less than two years, just over a year, really. And if that's not sickening enough, it wasn't just Oxford grads that were re-traumatized. Jackie Matthews was in sixth grade when she spent so much time crouched in a corner during a school shooting that she suffered a permanent back injury. Jackie is from Newtown, Connecticut, where in 2012, a 20-year-old man entered Sandy Hook Elementary School and murdered 26 people, 20 of them children. The 10-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook massacre just passed less than two months ago, and now here Jackie was again, a senior in college now, hiding from a school shooter once again. When the MSU shooting began, Jackie was at her off-campus home just across the street from Berkey Hall. She told the Today Show that going into lockdown mode was like muscle memory for her, which, if that does not just fucking infuriate you, mass shootings in our schools have become so prevalent that we've now got kids going through them multiple times. 
kids that have been so well-trained in how to respond to a lockdown, they don't even have to think about it. I can't remember if I've ever told you guys this story or not, um, but when my son was in second grade, they had a power outage at the school and they canceled school for the day. And when I got there to pick him up, the teacher said, well, we had a little incident with Ethan. You know, we, we couldn't find him when the power first went out. Apparently, he was in the bathroom when the lights went off. And his immediate thought as a seven-year-old little boy was that there were school shooters and his school was under attack. So my seven-year-old baby grabbed a plunger because it was the only thing he could find that looked like a weapon. And he was standing on a toilet so that they couldn't see his feet when they came into the bathroom. And even when it was teachers in there looking for him and looking to clear the bathroom, when they opened the door and said, is anybody in here? He didn't answer because he didn't know if it was a good guy or a bad guy my seven-year-old. So that's that's what we've allowed. I've never, I mean, he's 20 now, and I have never been able to get that image out of my head. This latest chapter of violence in our schools here in Michigan is just beyond heartbreaking. But this is a story that started nearly a hundred years ago in 1927 when a grown man suffering from mental illness was able to legally purchase the weapons he used to murder dozens of children at the Bath Consolidated School. The Bath School Massacre remains the deadliest school massacre in U.S. history. The Bath Police Department was one of the agencies that responded to the shooting at MSU last week because Bath borders East Lansing just to the north. So now what? We've got three bright, beautiful lights that have been taken from this world far too soon. Five other young adults that were critically wounded, some who have improved, others who still have not, at least one who is paralyzed. An entire student body of over 50,000 kids in the surrounding community that has been traumatized and forever changed, just forever changed, and more questions than answers. The one thing everyone wants to know is why did this happen? And that's likely never going to be answered. Is there even an answer that would make it make sense? I mean, no, (laughs) no, there's not. Of course there's not. The day following the shooting, many area schools and businesses were closed, not because there was still a threat, but because we are all (laughs) fucking traumatized. Berkey Hall, which has taught thousands of Spartans over the past nine decades, will be closed indefinitely. What to do with the Union Hall is a bit trickier because they have facilities and amenities that can't easily be moved to the other buildings. On February 15th, two days after the shooting, students were allowed back into the buildings they fled from that awful night to get their belongings, their cell phones, their backpacks, their laptops. They were accompanied by the FBI and, in many cases, their parents. Reluctant students returned back to campus on Sunday, February 19th, as classes were set to resume on February 20th, just a week after the shooting. We, as a community, did the best we could to welcome the kids back into a safe 
and loving environment, graduate student Emily Dahlman organized an event called Spartan Sunday, designed to welcome the kids back with hugs and signs and pet snuggles and snacks and gift baskets and gift cards to local businesses and restaurants. This idea Emily and a few of her friends came up with turned into a huge university-sponsored event with thousands of volunteers and literal truckloads of donated goods, and it came together in like three, four days. It's been incredible. It's, it's been incredible to watch the way that the community has rallied around these kids. Just everyone, everywhere is stepping up to protect and love and support these babies, and they are babies. And that's because MSU is our school, and the student body, which is constantly changing, you know, different kids every year, um, they're always our kids. They're all our kids. I do want to talk about the animals for a minute because that's been really incredible to see. So many local organizations that work with animals, the Constellation Cat Cafe, the farms out at MSU, the Capital Area Humane Society, organizations that train therapy dogs, they all opened up their books for free animal snuggles for students and staff. So we need to make sure that we're supporting these organizations in our communities because they're who we need when, God forbid, tragedy strikes. But it hasn't just been the dogs and the cats and the horses. It's been everything, everyone. Small businesses all over Spartan country have stepped up and stepped in with free food, tribute tattoos to raise money for the Spartan Strong Fund, free mom hugs, free admission to attractions. And let me just say, a lot of small businesses are really struggling right now. So to see everyone swoop in and just give, give, give when they really can't afford to, Please remember that. Please remember that that's what's happening. And when you can, give back to those businesses. Being that my entire business is based on, you know, true crime and death and disaster, I'm kind of struggling to find my place in all of this. I want to be there for my community in a way that's helpful and doesn't feel exploitative. At Dead Time Stories, we put out what we're calling the unterrible table. So it's just a little table with like, cute stickers and candy and chocolate and free books that are not about murder. I know it's not much. It's just kind of like a little pick-me-up for anyone who needs it. Um, I've been sharing as much information as I can about fundraisers and businesses offering specials and opportunities to volunteer on all of my social media channels. And then there's this. I don't know if this will help anyone in any way or if it's just an hour straight of me rambling, but for some reason... You guys have given me a voice, and I couldn't imagine using it for anything else right now. We're all hurting, and I don't want anyone to think that just because you weren't there, or you don't have kids attending MSU right now, or you don't know anyone that was directly affected, that you don't have the right to grieve and mourn and feel traumatized and feel like your whole world has changed because it has. This is our community. And we're never going to be the same, nor should we. It's been a really long time since there was a tragedy of this magnitude in the Lansing area. I could be wrong, but I mean, I know a lot about the things that have happened here. And the only other mass shooting event like this that I know of was the Michigan National Bank Tower shooting, which was back in 1932, so over 90 years ago. 
this is a big deal. Even in this desensitized society that we've become, it's a big deal. And it's okay if you're not okay. This affects all of us. And it's only been a week. Give yourself and others time. I want to share with you a quote from Graham Couch of the Lansing State Journal. Side note, we actually went to high school together. I think it was like a year ahead of me, maybe two. He said, this will be a national story for about 48 hours. Those folks will swoop in, leave, and move on. It'll be an MSU story, a part of our community story forever. I just, I keep thinking about this couple that I met at the shop last weekend, Sunday, the day before the shooting, they had just dropped their daughter off at MSU and they were exploring the area and they were so thrilled to see such like a unique thriving community surrounding the school. They were both wearing their proud parent MSU gear. And this is a pretty common occurrence. Parents like stopping by to check out the neighborhood after they've dropped their kids off on campus Or sometimes with their kids, they'll all come in together when they're here for like a school visit before they make their big decision on where they're going to go for college. People from all over the world, literally all over the world, bring their babies here and they leave them with us and they expect them to be safe and they should have been safe. I just, I keep picturing that couple from Sunday headed out of town, not expecting to see their daughter for a week or two or three, only to come rushing back in a panic 24 hours later, unable to get to their daughter as she sat in lockdown for four fucking hours. How how did we get here? Like, how did we get here? I have noticed over the past week so many people coming into the shop sporting their green and white, and I kind of wonder if that's because more people are wearing their Spartan gear right now to show support or just because I'm actually noticing it due to like the flip-flop that my stomach does every time I see Sparty or that big black S. Um, It's always been a joke that like finding something green to wear on St. Patrick's Day isn't a challenge for those of us in the Lansing area because almost all of us have at least one piece of Michigan State gear in our closets. I mean, I would say between my husband and my sons that like maybe half of our laundry is green and white. So it just, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just rambling now. And this episode has been much longer than I intended for it to be. When Danny and I sat down to record episode one of the podcast about MSU versus U of M serial killers nearly a hundred episodes ago now, I never ever thought that I'd someday be doing an episode like this. On the topic of our infamous interstate rivalry, sporting events picked back up this past weekend, less than a week after the shooting, and ironically, the men's basketball team's first game was against the University of Michigan at the University of Michigan. Now, when our teams met last fall for football, there was a brawl at the end that ended in criminal charges, which was new for all of us. Uh, Things tend to get a little heated, but I don't think they've ever gone that far before. But this game just this past Saturday, nothing but love. They lit their arena up green, held a moment of silence, 
Everyone, from the players to the coaches to the fans, were wearing T-shirts and stickers showing support for MSU. And when Coach Izzo cries, we all cry. It was really something to see, and I know that we'll never forget it. I think that's all I've got for now. Again, it's only been a week. We're all still reeling. Um, I do want to share some info, though, on ways that you can help before I go. And this is from the msu.edu website. The Spartan Strong Fund has been created by Michigan State University to provide support for the evolving needs of those most critically impacted by this tragedy. The fund will also be used for student and staff counseling, campus safety enhancements, and recognition for those involved with the crisis, such as first responders. Each situation and need is unique and evolving, but the university is committed to working with those most critically impacted to identify meaningful ways to provide support. To donate to the Spartan Strong Fund, the easiest thing to do is going to be just Google Spartan Strong Fund, but I will post the link uh, on the page for this episode on the Violet Ends website, and then I'll also give it to you now. It's giving2.msu.edu slash spartan-strong.cfm. CFM. So yeah, just, just Google it, Spartan Strong Fund, and it'll pop right up for you. There are also a number of verified GoFundMes. Don't just donate to any old fundraiser. There are lots of scammers out there. Um, GoFundMe has set up a page on their website listing the official fundraisers related to the tragedy at MSU. Uh, one for survivor Lupe Wapia Perez that's currently sitting at just under 449000 One for 911 operator Amy Barajas that's raised just under 16000 One for the family of Brian Frazier that's raised a little over 32000 One that's raising funds for meals for the families of those injured. And one for the Michigan State Relief Fund, which was started to provide students with food and other supplies. There's also that GoFundMe for Ariel Diamond Anderson. That is not listed on the official page, but I, I do think that is the official one. The one that I'm posting and sharing with you guys will be the one that her family created. Um, and then there is that one that's kind of in limbo right now for John Howe that his roommate created um, and is in the process of being verified. In the coming days and weeks, I'll continue to be annoying on the Violent Ends Facebook page, sharing resources and special offers and opportunities to volunteer as they become available. Uh, Violent Ends, as you know it, will be back in a couple of weeks with the episode that was intended for this week. If it's okay with you guys, I might stick with like dark history for a bit. Uh, as you can probably tell, I'm going through it over here myself, so it might be a little bit before I'm ready for true crime again. I want to leave you today with a post that I saw on TikTok from an MSU student, Gwen Watson. Gwen said, I am not surprised. I am not surprised that three Spartans are dead. I am not surprised that five more are fighting for their lives. In 2012, I was not surprised when 26 died in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. In 2015, I was not surprised when 10 died in Roseburg, Oregon. In 2018, I was not surprised when 17 died in Parkland, Florida. 
In 2021, I was not surprised when four died in Oxford, Michigan. So on February 13th, 2023, I was not surprised when I read the words, run, hide, fight, in East Lansing, Michigan. We barricaded the doors, hushed our voices, listened to the police scanner, and for four hours, we kept hoping we were safe. When someone banged on the door, we silently rushed to a more secure spot. When the scanner said there might be three shooters all across campus, all under a mile from us, we clutched anything that might give us a fighting chance if the worst was to come. We cried. We hugged one another. We called our loved ones. We did what we had been taught since we were children. And still, I am not surprised. I am not surprised that my community is broken or that our campus will never feel the same or that thousands will have to carry this trauma for the rest of their lives. Because I have grown up in a world where it is no longer a question of if, but when. I've grown up in a world where we've been taught how to survive since I can remember. I've grown up in a world where we fear for our lives in a place we call home. And I will not be surprised when Spartan Strong is no longer trending, when the media moves on, when another community joins us in mourning the deaths from another mass shooting. And I will not be surprised when nothing is done. So do not just give me your thoughts and prayers because your thoughts and prayers do not bring back the dead and will do nothing to stop this from happening again. I am shocked. I am angry. I am grieving. I am numb. But I am not surprised. So do something. Surprise me. <laughs>